Nuclear irrationality. While the world watches with bated breath and fingers crossed at the nuclear dangers posed by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it is confounding that even international sanctions against Russian oil, gas, and coal do not extend to that country's uranium. The manufacture and delivery of fuel rods for nuclear reactors have continued unabated. And while the war in Ukraine shows how nuclear dangers keep mounting, it's having a counterintuitive impact on the world's attitude towards nuclear power, which you learn with head-shaking clarity, as a genuine expert tells you. There's been some interesting reporting coming out now about how heavily dependent European Union countries and the UK, too, are on these Russian imports. And unfortunately, what that has provoked is this illogical response, which is instead of saying, well, obviously we need to shift off uranium fuel and move towards safer, more sustainable forms of energy like renewables, the response has been what we need is more nuclear, you know, which is sort of incredible when you consider what we've seen, the close call we saw at Zaporizhia and the catastrophe that's unfolding around Chernobyl. And all these lessons <laughs> seem to have been completely lost. Well, when Linda Pence Gunter, veteran journalist, founder and international specialist at Beyond Nuclear, points to the contradictory, irrational stance of the world's powers towards nuclear power expansion, you get an irrefutable glimpse at the insanity that underscores the giant, uncomfortable, radioactive seat that, unfortunately, we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear meltdown at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with Linda Pence Gunter, founder and international expert at Beyond Nuclear, as well as a veteran journalist. She talks to us about how the Russian trade in manufactured fuel rods for nuclear reactors has remained separate from all the sanctions that have been imposed against that country. We'll also launch a new semi-regular feature on the show, with Linda giving us a rundown on the week's hot story. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, Numbnuts of the Week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness and more honest nuclear information than Elon Musk may allow us to post on Twitter. We're still waiting to find that out. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, April 26th, 2022, the 36th anniversary of the Chernobyl disaster in Ukraine. And here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in Ukraine, where this morning, April 26, 
two cruise missiles launched by Russian troops have flown at low altitudes over the six nuclear reactor Zaporizhia nuclear power plant site. Petro Kotin, CEO of Energoatom, Ukraine's state-run nuclear operator, said the overflight of missiles at low altitude just above the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant site poses enormous risks. Missiles can hit one or more nuclear facilities, which poses a threat of a nuclear and radiation catastrophe to the whole world. Also at risk are the equipment and ammunition Russia holds right on the premises of the plant, having literally transformed the facility into a military base. Russia's invasion marks the first time that occupying a nuclear power plant was part of a nation's war strategy. And Rebecca Harms, former president of the Greens Group in the European Parliament, said it was a nightmare scenario in which, quote, every nuclear plant can be used like a pre-installed nuclear bomb. Ukraine has asked the International Atomic Energy Agency for a comprehensive list of equipment it needs to operate nuclear power plants during the war with Russia. Specifically, it asked for radiation measurement devices, protective material, computer-related assistance, power supply systems, and diesel generators. IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi said the IAEA is still not receiving remote data transmission from its monitoring systems installed at the defunct Chernobyl plant, but offered that radiation levels at the Chernobyl nuclear disaster site are, quote, abnormal, saying the area's brief Russian occupation had been, quote, very, very dangerous. And from there, he went to a meeting of the IAEA's first international conference on nuclear law, the Global Debate with more than 900 lawyers, representatives of national authorities, international organizations, nuclear industry, and civil society from 127 countries. And what did Grossi talk about? Technological development, adding nuclear energy, a force for the greater good, and at the same time poses challenges that must be solved. The conversations we have, the treaties we have, and the standards we have continue or need to be adjusted with he and others going on to speak about peaceful uses of nuclear energy. This just before the 36th anniversary of the nuclear disaster at Chernobyl and the current Chernobyl 2.0 difficulties. In the United States, near Denver, a defunct uranium mine is contaminating groundwater near a reservoir that provides Denver drinking water. Uranium concentrations in groundwater exceed the human health standard for uranium by more than 1,000 times, this according to state records. In New Mexico, at the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, the U.S. government's nuclear waste repository, the Department of Energy's Office of the Inspector General has raised fire protection concerns going back to 2016 that firefighting equipment is in disrepair after years of neglect and an undeveloped training curriculum for the technical rescue program is backed by claims by the firefighters that their training needs weren't being met. In 2022 alone, there have been three incidents, including one where workers discovered radioactive liquid in a container sent from the Idaho National Laboratory. New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham has voiced her concern on these issues, as well as plans for the WIP site to be used to dispose of weapons-grade plutonium, 35 metric tons of it. In Japan, Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, has announced that it will quote-unquote fix a pipe contaminated with highly radioactive materials located between Units 1 and 2 of the destroyed Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant by using 
wire rope to attach it to an adjacent pipe, either one of which may break and sag due to earthquakes. The pipes were used in the venting process immediately after the accident to release contaminated air from inside the reactor. The surface dose of radiation at the connection with the exhaust stack is four sieverts per hour, which is high enough to kill a person if he or she stays there for several hours. Internationally, here is a new feature, Nuclear Hot Seat's Hot Story of the Week with Linda Pence-Gunter. Europe breathed a sigh of relief on Sunday when incumbent French President Emmanuel Macron won a second term after a runoff against far-right extremist candidate Marine Le Pen. A relief because Europeans viewed a Le Pen victory as the likely end of the now fragile European Union, already hit by the British decision to leave known as Brexit. But, as one disillusioned voter told National Public Radio, it was like choosing between the plague and cholera. Ouch! Macron has disappointed many, but perhaps none more so than the French anti-nuclear movement, who were hoping for a trend similar to Germany's nuclear phase-out, as France finally shuttered its oldest nuclear power plant at Fessenheim and promised more closures to come. Instead, a cornerstone of Macron's re-election platform was an expansion of French nuclear power, a plan for six new reactors, a decision commentator Paul Hockenos described as an egregious miscalculation that will severely inhibit its decarbonization efforts. Hockenos went on, at a critical juncture in the battle against climate change, diverting any finances and losing time with nuclear power, which has been in decline worldwide for decades, will only set back the country's climate efforts, perhaps dooming its chances to go carbon neutral by 2050. Macron can certainly be credited with chutzpah, if we want to be polite, in daring to suggest that six new EPR2 reactors, even better than the EPR1, was the bold way forward to address the climate crisis. The EPR stands rather loftily for evolutionary power reactor, but its first iteration seems to have demonstrated evolution in reverse. Instead of getting smarter, cheaper and safer, the EPR has been a precipitous disaster. Its poster child, the Flamanville 3 reactor in France, is now almost 12 years behind schedule with a start date revised for the umpteenth time to 2023. Its original $3.7 billion budget now stands at $21.5 billion. The two EPRs in Finland are gradually creeping toward a start date, also more than 12 years late, beset by corporate withdrawals and litigation, technical failures and costs that have tripled. One of China's EPRs had to be shut down due to mysterious vibrations. The two Hinkley C EPRs in the UK are still unfinished with costs soaring to $31 billion and counting. With such a monumental industrial disaster on your hands, you'd think Macron would be at the very least reticent about boasting of a renewed French nuclear empire. But now, buoyed by his re-election, he will doubtless press on with the EPR too which at 1,750 megawatts will be considerably larger and therefore even more dangerous than the current version. The French have been plagued with nuclear power for too long. As a result, their renewable energy sector is feeble at best, not there to back up power when the nuclear plants go down, as they have lately made a habit of doing in France. Maybe Macron's nuclear fantasies will simply fizzle. After all, as Hockenos says, the single greatest barrier to the so-called nuclear renaissance is nuclear power itself and its inability to deliver affordable power on time 
and on budget. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter with Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's this week's hot story. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, if you've been trying to follow the nuclear aspects of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and all you've been checking into is mainstream media, forget about it. Major media lacks the persistence of vision and will to understand that the nuclear story in Ukraine has not gone away, is not going away, and that it has ramifications that continue to unfold as we learn more about the damage done by the Russians. There is ongoing threat to not only Chernobyl and Zaporizhia, but the rest of the world. And that is why you need nuclear hot seat. We don't look away. We don't flinch. We continue on the story every week, looking for the latest information and angles that reveal progressively more details on nuclear dangers. You'll hear an example of that on today's interview. And if you're looking for the history of how we painted ourselves into this nuclear corner, we continue to upload our archive of 11 years, more than 560 episodes, onto the newly updated website. So you will be able to learn by searching, listening, and soon reading transcripts for episodes going back to 2011. Nuclear Hot Seat is the world's longest-running program exclusively on nuclear matters. And while the show is provided without cost to broadcast stations, online distribution sources, downloading, and links to all forms of social media, that doesn't mean that it is without cost. There are monthly charges for all of the services it keeps to take running this show. And given the additional costs we've taken on for the website upgrade, the time for you to donate and help us out would be right now. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the red Donate button. You can send a one-time donation or set up a recurring donation for as little as $5 a month. Know that whatever you can do to help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here is this week's featured interview. Linda Pence Gunter founded Beyond Nuclear in 2007 and serves as its international specialist as well as its media and development director. Prior to her work in anti-nuclear advocacy, She was a journalist for 20 years in print and broadcast, working for USA Network, Reuters, The Times in the UK, and other U.S. and international outlets. She brings a clarity and precision to all her reporting, with specific insights into international aspects of the stories. To find out more on one underrepresented nuclear aspect of the Russian war on Ukraine, I spoke with Linda Pence-Gunter on Thursday, April 21st, 2022. Linda Pence-Gunter, thanks so much for making the time to be with us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Since Russia invaded Ukraine and began the war on February 24th, worldwide attention has been paid to the nuclear dangers in Ukraine, focusing primarily on Chernobyl and the six reactor Zaporizhia sites but much less attention has been paid to Russia's place in the international nuclear fuel cycle, specifically uranium mining, the manufacture of fuel rods for nuclear reactors and attendant issues. You're one of the few journalists who's been covering this topic consistently. So let's start with a bit of background. First of all, explain what nuclear fuel rods are and what is required to make them. 
nuclear fuel rods are what drives the uh, fissioning of a nuclear reactor and they are fueled by uranium which is mined from the earth and then has to be milled processed and enriched to a certain degree uh, usually to about five percent when it comes to traditional light water reactors and then uh, manufactured into fuel so the problem being of course that as we know, mining uranium in the first place releases a very dangerous substance into our environment. And from the first moment that we mine the first gram of uranium ore, we have paid the price ever since. And when you go back to what the many indigenous people around the world have sort of stitched into their fabric of their lore, it's to leave the yellow powder in the earth. So they knew something centuries ago that we've chosen to ignore and we're paying the price ever since. And as you said, you know, Russia seems to control a significant market in this regard, one way or the other. And that's come to light more especially now because of the invasion of Ukraine and the impetus to sort of get away from importing all things nuclear, all things energy, actually, from Russia. One of the most remarkable things that really alerted me to this aspect of the issue is that when President Biden came down with sanctions against various forms of energy, meaning gas and oil and coal from Russia, uranium was exempt from the sanctions. What is behind this exemption at a time when it seems we would most want to be cutting off uranium. You know, that's a really interesting story because it sort of turned around quite fast, I think. There was obviously serious lobbying on behalf of the Nuclear Energy Institute immediately that Biden began talking about energy embargoes on Russia because they knew perfectly well that they got, I think, about 15% of their uranium supply from Russia particularly a much significant, more significant amount from Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. And there's a bit of a debate about how independent that flow from those two countries is of Russian control. But within a matter of days, all of a sudden, a light bulb, I think, went off, perhaps precipitated by the sort of politically uncomfortable position that the NEI found itself in saying, oh, please keep uranium imports exempt from this embargo, when the rest of the world was saying, we've got to squeeze Russia financially as hard as we can. And all of a sudden, the light bulb went off that, oh, wait a minute, this is a market that we, in fact, could capture ourselves. And so along comes a bill from John Barrasso of Wyoming, which says, wait a minute, you know, we absolutely ought to boycott all Russian uranium and nuclear technology because we can reopen uranium mines here, particularly in Wyoming, one of the biggest uranium mining states, and start to manufacture exactly what we're dependent on Russia for. And this even includes the high SA low enriched uranium fuel, otherwise known as Halyu, which of course is particularly disturbing because this is uranium fuel enriched up to potentially 20%, which therefore makes it at the very least nuclear weapons usable. And so now there's talk of, well, you know, we'll manufacture that ourselves, we'll mine, we'll mill. Actually, there's a bill now from Joe Manchin, which is talking about exporting all sorts of nuclear technology and grabbing not only the Russian, but the Chinese market as well. So I, I think that there, that's been an interesting trajectory. 
driven obviously by the dependence, but suddenly changed by the idea of profiteering ourselves. And you know who will pay the price for that, obviously, when we go back to the beginning and we start to open uranium mines, we're talking exactly about what we were talking a minute ago, which is inflicting on largely indigenous peoples the most harm with the least benefit of this industry. Why is Russia such a big player in this for the United States and for the EU countries as well? Not only the uranium, but also providing the processing necessary to make the HALU fuel and also the nuclear fuel rods. I'm not familiar with the history of how they captured that market, but clearly it appears that uranium processing in this country has gradually been phased out. And perhaps there was just a tendency to look the other way out of convenience and take from Russia what it was willing to sell us. But I'm not familiar with the exact background to this. But as you say, there's been some interesting reporting coming out now about how heavily dependent European Union countries and the UK too, which is of course no longer part of the Union, um, you know, how dependent they also are on these Russian imports. And unfortunately, what that has provoked is this illogical response, which is instead of saying, well, obviously we need to shift off uranium fuel and move towards safer, more sustainable forms of energy like renewables, the response has been what we need is more nuclear, you know, which is sort of incredible when you consider what we've seen, the close call we saw at Zaporizhia, which was attacked by Russian troops, the six reactor site in the eastern part of the country, and the catastrophe that's unfolding around Chernobyl, where Russian troops, 20-year-olds who knew apparently nothing about where they were or what they were doing, camped and dug trenches and, and lived off the land in the most radioactive place on Earth, the Red Forest around Chernobyl, and have now, in fact, increased the radiation levels on that site because of their disturbing presence there. And all these lessons <laughs> seem to have been completely lost and interpret it as a reason for European countries in the US to increase their nuclear development. The nuclear industry seems to have an excellent ability to have us work against our best interests. A big example being the EU taxonomy, which now labels nuclear as, quote unquote, a green energy source when it is the opposite. And that would be a subject for a whole other show between the two of us. But there's a point here. And it's my understanding that unlike cars, where you don't have to go to a dealer for parts, but you can get them just as good quality and cheaper at, say, AutoZone, when it comes to nuclear, you got to dance with the guy who brung you. In other words, if you got your nuclear technology from Russia, you must use Russian manufactured fuel rods and replacement parts in your reactor. So in essence, like in the Cold War, you are stuck with Russia as your nuclear overlord. And this, in essence, is a way of extending the Cold War accumulation of allies, except they're not willing allies. They're forced to because they've got this technology and they can't break away from it. How accurate would that be? So that's a pretty big sort of geopolitical hypothesis. The legacy of the Cold War is so problematic in so many ways. The whole initiation of NATO and what that's delivered, a 
continuous sort of ethos of war making, which hasn't delivered us the sort of the peace that we thought we would see when the Berlin Wall came down and when the Soviet Union collapsed and so forth. It it seems that the saber rattling and the bristling of arms and the and the inching ever closer towards borders has just got worse. So I just feel deeply frustrated on a sort of more philosophical level that we are so willing to be distracted by war making and threatening of nuclear weapons and believing conspiracy theories and not doing what we should do collectively as a human species, which is address the existential crisis that's coming at us fast. And that's obviously the climate emergency. And it's sort of this trend that we see in so many areas where we're continuing to do more and more self-destructive things in the face of a real major threat rather than pulling together. Is that part of our human condition? I don't know. But whatever lessons we take from our past and the the Cold War and the end of the Cold War don't seem to have been learned at all. And, And we're just sort of inching our way back into that same mindset where we have an enemy and we have to build barriers and we have to load up the other side. You know, it's it's worrying. I understand why Finland and Sweden think they want to join NATO, but all that's doing is stoking that fire further and it's not resolving the conflict we have at hand. So none of this is really to do with the question you asked or nuclear, but I think it's symptomatic of a, a greater malaise that we seem to be suffering. It seems that Russia's nuclear industry has not been changed, has not been impacted by what's going on in Ukraine and even by the sanctions. Indeed, we know that Russia's delivery of fuel rods for reactors has continued with recent news that Hungary received its first shipment of nuclear fuel for its Pox nuclear reactor on April 7. And even the EU's flight ban on Russian aircraft was lifted for a delivery of nuclear fuel to Slovakia. Do we know if delivery of nuclear fuel from Russia has remained unimpeded for other countries and other reactors as well? Yeah, as far as I know, that spigot has not been turned off anywhere. I mean, we've talked about the legislation that's afoot here, but none of that's actually passed, obviously. I don't think it's even been discussed yet. So it's all going to take probably far too long to make the impact that we think it will make. And also, it's it's unclear what impact it does, in fact, make. I mean... We don't really know when we hear statements out of Russia, whether they're true or not. But what we are hearing is that they're doing quite fine, thank you, despite the sanctions, and they have other avenues and still other partners that they can turn to. So whether that's really effective or not, it's so tantalizing, really, if you think about it, that if sanctions are not effective, and we certainly don't want to escalate into direct intervention in the conflict, because if US or even NATO partners go to war in Russia, that could be catastrophic in terms of nuclear weapons. We've also seen that nuclear deterrence has utterly failed because Putin is using his possession of nuclear weapons as a free pass to invade a neighboring country and commit all sorts of atrocities and no one can do anything. So, you know, it hasn't deterred war. You know, we we sort of in this paralysis of what do you actually do then? You know, what is the solution that doesn't make nuclear war more likely, that doesn't further jeopardize the possibility of the nuclear power plants in Ukraine being weaponized in some way? 
Because obviously, if it's a scorch earth policy, then Putin could deliberately order an attack on a Ukrainian nuclear power plant in order to irradiate at least that immediate area. But of course, as we know, given the inventory of radioactive fuel in those reactors, it would in fact harm far more countries than just Ukraine and probably Russia. So it would be somewhat suicidal, depending on which way the wind blows. But all these possibilities are sort of in play. You know, I don't know any more than anyone else, I guess, what really would change anything. But we're on the edge of a precipice and we're watching with our breath held every day. Not only will would there be some sort of disaster at one of these nuclear power plants, but is Putin serious when he threatens the potential use of nuclear weapons? Certainly, if he feels himself painted into a corner, he might react with, well, if I'm going to be going out, be it politically or physically, if he has the same unimpeded access to launching nukes that the president of the United States has, he could just decide to go and the hell with everybody else. Yes, I mean, who knows? I, I tend to feel that he is somebody that desperately wants power. And so that would be a real last resort. But, you know, we're all guessing as far as what goes on in his head, obviously. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Let's take a look at small modular nuclear reactors, because it seems that the only source of the HALU film, the high, what does it stand for? High? Low enriched uranium. That the only source of it seems to be Russia. Why is that the case? Why is it not being produced here in the United States? Not that I want that to happen, but geopolitically now, this seems to be a real important point. Well, that is actually what is in the Mansion Risch bill, which is this sort of bonanza of all things nuclear. You know, there's even something called Team USA in this bill. <laughs> Team USA, it has nothing to do with the Olympics. It has all to do with this grandiose plan. I mean, it's worth a read. I, I've written something about it. It'll be online next week. But it's a really a grandiose plan to manufacture and export all things, you know, soup to nuts nuclear and including helio fuel, because the answer is, well, you know, why don't we make this? We could make it. I mean, it's enormously complicated to set up that level of infrastructure. How soon it will happen, I don't know. But the small modular reactor program is absolutely dependent on this. You know, the pressure from that side of things, you know, if we want to go forward with our small modular reactors, we have to have this fuel. We can't bring it in from Russia now because that's politically unacceptable. Therefore, it has to be manufactured at home. And this will be a great bonanza for jobs. So, you know, it's nonsense, of course, but all these ideas that this will sort of somehow stimulate the economy, provide good jobs, enhance U.S. national security. And this is all the exact wording in the introduction to this bill, that that's the answer. Instead of which, you know, when, when I think of Manchin, who's a nuisance, to put it mildly, you know, he's the Democrat, so-called, from West Virginia. When you think of what would benefit West Virginia, you'd think you'd want to bring in the fastest growing employment sector in the country, which is renewable energy. And that would be an obvious way to stimulate the economy of West Virginia, not to start talking about some very sophisticated, high skilled employment sector, which is nuclear, which is years down the road, 
to create something that is a proliferation gift to the countries that you export it to, which is really what this is all about. I mean, even the small modular reactors are about export. They're not really designed to use at home. Um, it's clear from things that Bill Gates and others have said that this is an export market in their minds. Okay, so we're gonna export a high assay, low enriched uranium fuel to emerging nuclear countries. That's also in the Mansion Bill. That means countries that haven't developed nuclear power programs. So we're just gonna hand them the key to the nuclear weapons door. That's really what we're doing. So all of this is works completely contrary to what the rest of the world is trying to do, which is to disarm from you know, nuclear weapons, to abandon them, to abolish them as the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons has done. So we've got these sort of conflicting forces of on the one hand, we must address nuclear weapons abolition and climate change. On the other, let's make all those things more risky by developing a vast nuclear export empire just to sort of stick it to Russia and China. Given the history of how long it takes to build anything nuclear and how much over budget they go consistently, it doesn't seem like there is anything in the near future as a result of this bill, other than pork, money, a lot of money, not only millions, but billions of dollars being poured from public funds into the nuclear industry. How feasible is this plan of theirs, or might it be just a quick money grab under the emotional pressure of what's going on between Russia and Ukraine? I think they're serious about wanting to develop nuclear power, but for all the wrong reasons. But the reality is that it's completely financially inappropriate. As you said, the learning curve of nuclear has sort of gotten worse. So, you know, as we develop more and more new nuclear power plants, they're taking even longer to build than they did before. So that means that we haven't learned any lessons really. And we just have to look at Plant Vogel in Georgia more than 12, you know, 12 years behind, is so over budget. The similar ones in France, in Finland, even China who rushed their evolutionary power reactors into being and then had to turn them off because there were some fatal technical flaws. You know, that, that we just haven't conquered this technology in any way. As we all know, and as your listeners definitely know, the amount of time it will take to bring even one nuclear reactor to fruition, that money would be better spent on bringing far more carbon reductions faster at lower cost, investing that same amount into renewables and, of course, energy efficiency. It doesn't have any logic to it. That's something I've also kind of pondered a lot, like what is behind this obsession with nuclear when clearly it is one of the most expensive, most dangerous and slowest energy technologies you could possibly choose, therefore completely inapplicable for the climate crisis, but we're bent on pursuing it and diverting money into it. You know, what's worrying about bills like mansions is not so much whether it's just pie in the sky, they'll never happen, but the fact that money and time are being wasted and diverted into an energy that isn't going to deliver anything when that same money could have been invested in bringing on renewables and efficiency fast and actually making a difference. So that's why it needs defeating. You know, it's, it's not really, we'll let them have their little toys to play with because that'll keep them quiet. You know, it, it's our money. <laughs> And it needs to be spent on something that will actually save us and not doom us. How do you think the nuclear industry 
is able to get away with such a grotesque reframing of the argument. Every time a solid objection comes up or a weakness comes up where the country might be able to be leveraged away from its hypnosis about nuclear, that it's really quote unquote clean, green and sustainable, where the only thing that's sustainable about it is the forever nature of the waste. How do they do this? Big money. You know, big money, good PR firms, big law firms. I think when you've got the tools of propaganda at your disposal and you use them effectively, which they have, I mean, they seize upon a narrow message and they repeat it over and over again. They recruit people to write op-eds that sort of mushroom up in newspapers across the country and online. They recruit people who are supposedly turncoats, which which the media seizes upon. You know, now we're hearing all about how Carol Browner, you know, was once this great anti-nuclear champion, which I don't think she ever was, but now is seeing the light and, and thinks nuclear power is the answer and so forth. I think it's just marketing, you know, because it's easy to grasp. When we try to explain why nuclear isn't a good thing, we have to get bogged down in all sorts of things like halo fuel. I mean, who wants to really, that isn't going to sell people, right? We have to sort of talk about these things. And so our ability to capture a message and sell it is limited. And then we're obviously hampered by lack of access, lack of money, the ability not to be able to saturate the market with a repeated message. I think that the nuclear industry, though, has been sort of boxed gradually into a corner and they've really only got the climate piece now left. There's nowhere else they can sort of argue their way out of their box, you know, that they they have no role at all, but they can sort of pull the wool over people's eyes about climate because they can capitalize on our quite right panic about how serious climate is and how, well, obviously we should just use everything we've got. That's a sort of apparently logical conclusion, but when you look actually at it analytically, the all of the above scenario is not the answer, but it sounds logical. So I think that's part of it. It's just massive funding for good messaging that that spreads lies. Those of us who oppose nuclear certainly don't have anywhere even a small fraction of that kind of funding. But we do have a lot of people in a lot of places. I know with Nuclear Hot Seat, I've been promoting the tweet of the week so that at least people put something out there and we've got something to repeat to each other and retweet to each other because it's a way of getting at least a small echo chamber going. What are some actions do you believe we can and need to take if we're to have any impact at all upon the nuclear industry and this juggernaut that they have fueled a propaganda about how great they are? You know, years ago when I used to do media training with Scott Denman and the Safe Energy Communication Council, one of the first things we agreed to in the room was we are enough. Those of us who are here right now, we are enough, which sort of presupposes that all of us actually, if we all do something, can make a significant difference. So I think you're absolutely on the right track. We can all tweet, we can all post to Facebook, we can all write letters to the editors, some of us can write op-eds. You know, we've got to up our output. I think we're good at sitting around and moaning about how the other side's getting all this publicity, but if we don't get off and write in and continually bombard the media outlets that are at least somewhat receptive, then we really have no excuse. 
And I do think that the tide has actually turned a bit. I mean, one of the things anecdotally I'm noticing on Twitter especially is two instances. One was what you referred to earlier about the EU green taxonomy when nuclear was included. There was an absolute tornado of opposition to this. I mean, I didn't see anything that said, oh, great, this is wonderful. What a good thing they've done. It was a torrent of criticism, negative criticism about what a mistake this is, including from the financial side of things. You know, the f they're not interested. They don't see this as a good investment. <laughs> so there's no energy for that at all. And the other one was when the Boris Johnson administration recently in the UK came out with their energy strategy, which included, I think, eight new nuclear plants and sort of cancelling onshore wind because a few Tories didn't like the view and so forth. And there was just, again, a kind of torrent of negative, even from very conservative media outlets like the Times and the Telegraph and from people within the Conservative Party, a completely almost unanimous criticism of what an awful plan this is. And so I think there's an opening now and we need to run through that door en masse and do as much of the output as we can. Tweet of the day, you know, I mean, absolutely tweet of them hour. I mean, if you look at Paul Dorfman, I think he must live on Twitter now. <laughs> that's sort of every 10 minutes you see it. But that's, if everybody did at least a quarter of that kind of thing, I think it changes the conversation because a lot of it is probably about perception too. You know, when you're on Twitter, you're there to see what the conversation's about. And if you see it's predominantly anti-nuclear, then you get the sense, oh, maybe this is actually, this is the way things are going now. And so I think we can turn it around, but we've all got to get much more proactive about it. Does Beyond Nuclear have anything like a fact sheet, a checklist that we can use as source material for generic tweets. In other words, it's not necessarily pegged to what's happening in Russia or Ukraine or the UK or here in the US, but that we can post on a regular basis just to lay in our talking points and our perspective. Well, you said it there, talking points, because that's actually what we call them. And we've got at the moment four talking points. And these are so they're each taken from a body of work by a particular expert or set of experts and boiled down what tend to be quite long studies or reports that only you and I probably would read and a few other people, but not everybody has the time or the inclination to read, but there are a lot of good nuggets in there. And so what these do, and I use these all the time, and particularly the first one, which is Amory Lovins's work. And He's got some really cogent one-liners in there, which I use all the time embedded into op-eds or tweets or other postings. And these are all focused on why nuclear power has no utility for the climate crisis, but they come at it from a lot of different perspectives. You know, there's one from Ed Lyman on why advanced isn't always better, his longer paper. So it just boils down things that are already out there into short form, single sentences. And the whole point of these talking points is to use them in that way, to just say, oh, here's one that fits what I need to say today and just posted out there. And I hope that people will start to use these more. We're going to continue to do others in the series, pretty much, I think, focused always on the climate crisis angle, because that does seem to be the only tool left in the nuclear armory, you know, as far as argument that they think they can make. 
because I think all the other ones like the waste and so forth are well known. I mean, we have lots of fact sheets on waste on small modular reactors and all these other things, but that climate argument is the one that tends to be the confounding one sometimes. So that's what they're there for. And, and they're on, actually there's a page on the Beyond Nuclear International website when you first go there, you'll see talking points. You can also get to them from the Beyond Nuclear website, but they live on the Beyond Nuclear International website. They're two sides of a single page, so they're easy to download and print off and use and hand out. People are using them now that we're going back to real life events to hand out and so forth. So please encourage folks to use them. I will continue to do so, and we will also link to those so that people will have easy access through the Nuclear Hot Seat website, nuclearhotseat.com. We have not faced this much attention on nuclear matters, I think, since Fukushima or perhaps Chernobyl. And this may even be more all-encompassing because we've got the fuel cycle, we've got reactors, we've got what's supposed to be the next generation, the small modular nuclear reactors, as well as the threat of nuclear war. Given this massive increase in awareness of nuclear issues, what is your sense of where we are in history right now? What is this moment about? And big question, what can we do to influence it? As much as possible. And, and really what you were, we were talking about a moment ago is that we have to be heard. And if the mainstream media won't hear us, and that is still, I think, a problem. I just had that experience recently with Grist, for example, which has traditionally been quite bad on our issue. You know, when you go back and look at what they've published, it's been very pro-nuclear. The publication Grist, G-R-I-S-T, it's an online, I think, publication, which has done quite a lot of stories on nuclear, almost all pro. This is just an anecdotal example of the struggle we face. So a reporter called me. We talked for probably half an hour at least. I gave her a lot of material and I got one half sentence in the article that somebody else wrote sounding a kind of emotional, you know, a, a kind of emotional response to the issue. And the rest of it was all rah, 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 pro-nuclear stuff. So that's the obstacle we face in terms of what can we do? Sometimes we have to make our own media. I mean, that's what you've done. You know, you're a classic example of what we need to do, which is, okay, trying to get on mainstream radio, NPR, into the Washington Post. It's just a ton of struggle for maybe the occasional half sentence. <laughs> you saw six seconds soundbite or whatever it is you eventually get. But if you make your own media and you have your own platform, then you can start to put out in-depth, reliable empirical, true information. And that's what we need to do. We, we need lots more of that kind of self-started output and also to sort of figure out the friendlies. You know, there are places where you can, Common Dreams, a great site where we routinely get on. And so I think there are other avenues that we all just need to use more of and speak up and be heard. I understand as a writer that, you know, writing is not everybody's forte or speaking is not everybody's forte. And so we tend to sort of think, oh, I can't do this, which is why the talking points are there, you know, to help construct for you so you don't have to reinvent the wheel each time. And I just hope that more and more people will take up, I would say not the pen, but you know what I mean, and say something, you know, publicize their thoughts and 
fight back. And, and we used to be able to say, well, turn up, you know, to meetings and so forth. That's a bit harder now, although they're online. So I think, you know, just, we've got to just be a bit pushy about things. Instead of taking a pen or pencil or some writing implement like that from another <laughs> century, they can at least pick up copy and paste. And I'm going to ask anyone within the sound of this interview to go to either nuclearhotseat.com or beyondnuclearinternational.org. That's the one where the talking points are most easily accessed, but you'll also get them through the publication site. Or there's a direct link on beyondnuclear.org as well to Beyond Nuclear International. So, you know, one way or the other, you will find the talking points. Adjacent to where you will find the talking points on the beyondnuclearinternational.org website are something called handbooks. And these are slightly longer, but they're also broken down into easy sections. One of them is called Climate Change and Why Nuclear Power Can't Fix It and addresses all the different aspects of why nuclear power is actually an impediment to addressing the climate crisis rather than a solution. So depending on how deeply you want to go into it, that material's there, you know, you're welcome to plagiarize it into op-eds and letters to the editor. It's nice if there's an opportunity to put a link back to the source material, please do, because we do want to bring reporters to our site as well. We do have a, a small core of reporters that get all our material each week, but I think a lot of the time there's just sort of an unawareness too that, I mean, I just saw a piece today, I think it was, I'm trying to remember who did it, but it was Oh, it was Al Jazeera, which was a bit disappointing, actually, because they've done quite good work. But this piece was just so bad. It was, you know, it, it was clearly somebody who'd just been sort of hoodwinked along and gone to some nuclear plant and got all starry eyed and said all sorts of untrue things that, you know, and there was just nobody on there to contradict it, except somebody from NRDC who was misrepresented. In fact, said that he didn't think of nuclear as a solution to climate, but was presented as even environmentalists now think that nuclear is okay, which is not, in fact, what the soundbite in the piece even said. So, you know, that's the challenge that we face is this sort of willingness these days, unfortunately. And I was a journalist for 20 years. So, you know, I remember as the spoon feeding began, that's when I started to retreat from that profession because I thought, you know, it's become sit in a press conference, write down whatever they tell you and run a story off the press release. That's not reporting. That's not going, wait a minute, is this, hmm, this is coming from a sort of vested interest spokesperson. Maybe I should actually talk to somebody more independent. That just doesn't seem to happen. And if they do talk to us, it's sort of, well, you know, we're the kind of hippie tree hugging anti-nuclear types. There's still this cliche from sort of 20, 30 years ago, instead of accepting the fact that there is empirical evidence supporting what we say. It's not just a notion as sometimes it's described. And so all these things present challenges that we have to work to overcome. Is there anything else you would like to address at this time that you haven't had a chance to get to? In thinking about the question you asked earlier about sort of where we're at with nuclear war being at its most likely ever, the bulletin of the atomic scientists doomsday clock 100 seconds to midnight could be closer probably it was moved before the invasion by russia of ukraine the climate crisis that we're not addressing in time where are we at in this juncture and what are we sort of forgetting and that is the sort of human story behind all of this that as we get very wound up in geopolitics and in 
kinds of fuel and in technical discussions about the technology itself, what we're forgetting is all the people in all the places that suffer, no matter what this uranium is used for, whether it's mined out of the ground to make nuclear power plants run or whether it's mined out of the ground to fuel nuclear weapons, the suffering is the same. And it, that continues, it's passed on through every stage of the uranium fuel chain. And that's something that if we look at the people who pay the price at every phase of that, rather than the technology itself or the cost, you know, we have to look at all those things. But if we also recognize the victims of it, then we start to reach people on a level that perhaps we're not reaching. It's what ICANN and others who got the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons done came up with they realized that the only way to start to move the world to accept nuclear weapons as something that should be permanently banned by law is to approach it from the humanitarian impacts point of view, rather than the geopolitical or the technological or the, you know, the outcomes, but really look at who gets hurt. All of us, really, obviously, with those. And, it, you know, it's starting to change. We, there's a lot more out there now about victims of atomic testing. There's even a move now to apologize to the Marshallese, you know, which is kind of token, but nevertheless hasn't ever happened. <laughs> you know, this, these are the islands that were, you know, the atolls that were obliterated by U.S. atomic testing during the Cold War. So I think that there, that's starting to shift in the right direction. And we can only hope that we can view that more often and more forcefully because if we recognize ourselves as a common species and that we're hurting each other by choosing these technologies, that's our one hope to save ourselves from the ultimate catastrophes of either nuclear war or the climate emergency spiraling completely out of control. So that's a sort of rather long-winded, deep answer to your question. But I do think that that's sort of my bandwagon at the moment and something I'll be talking about our night with the experts, for example, at NEIS and what I talked about at a conference last year in Austria is really not forgetting the faces of the people who are harmed every day at each different phase of this and all of our faces if at the very end of the day we use this technology for ill. And that can happen whether we detonate nuclear weapons or whether we attack nuclear power plants, albeit on different scales, but nevertheless resulting in extensive, widespread and persistent and enduring harm. Linda Pence-Gunter, I need to talk with you more often. This has been a breathtakingly thorough interview, and I want to thank you so much for being with us, sharing this, and hopefully you will do so more in the future on Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, thank you. And thank you for what you're doing. It's a really important contribution to getting the message out there. Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear. We will have a link up to those talking points from Beyond Nuclear on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 566. And I'm delighted to tell you that Linda and I did talk at length after the interview. And as a result, she has agreed to be a regular contributor to Nuclear Hot Seat. That's the new feature you already heard on this week's show, the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, providing not only facts, but insight and context on one major story. Linda, welcome aboard, and we look forward to your future reports.
Activist, activist, shout out, shout out, shout out. Our congratulations to Downwinder activist Mary Dixon, whose play Exposed was read as part of the Taos Environmental Film Festival last Sunday, April 24th. We're particularly pleased because the organizers of the film festival found out about her play after they heard my interview with her on Nuclear Hot Seat, on Nuclear Hot Seat number 557. Netflix is presenting The Meltdown, Three Mile Island. It's a four-part documentary that promises to revisit what exactly went wrong as it untangles what is being labeled an explosive atomic conspiracy. The four-part Netflix documentary is available for binge-watching as of May 4th, and it will only be up for a month, so don't delay. See it as soon as possible and let others know as well. Here's the tweet of the week based on this episode. Russia still ships uranium-filled nuclear fuel rods to reactors around the world. No limits. If U.S. has sanctions against Russian oil, gas, and coal, why do we not sanction their uranium? Why is the nuclear industry exempt? And who decided? We'll have a copy-and-paste version available both on the website and with our weekly email notification. You can sign up for it at NuclearHotSeat.com. Look for the yellow opt-in box. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 19, 2022. You can get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week as soon as it posts. Sign up for it at NuclearHotSeat.com. Scroll down for the yellow box, put in your first name and email address, and you'll get an email with the link, as well as a short description of the show's content. You can also sign up at any of your favorite podcast sources. We are everywhere. Now, if you've got a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, we want that information. So send it in an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate these weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to go to nuclearhotseat.com, look for that modest-sized red button, click on it, follow the prompts, and anything you can do will help, and we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed. You gotta cite me, my guests, with our websites. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that none of us is out of prison as long as one nuclear bomb exists. Sister Megan Rice. That has been your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep! Because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.